This episode is brought to you by New Year's Resolutions. May 2023 bring us all plenty of joy and happiness. Welcome back, everybody, to My Fave Queer Chemist. I'm your host, Beck. And I'm Geraldo, and we are so excited to share with you the lovely conversation we had with today's guest. So with that, here's our show. Hello, everyone. Today, we are really excited to introduce y'all to an amazing scientist and educator. Would you mind introducing yourself? I would love to introduce myself. My name is Eden Tanner. I use she, her pronouns. I, I started my journey in academia as an undergraduate at the University of New South Wales in Sydney in Australia. I then went to grad school in the UK at the University of Oxford. I did a postdoc at Harvard in bioengineering uh, and then now started my own lab. And I'm in a chemistry department, but we really sit somewhere between uh, kind of physical chemistry and bioengineering. Um, and I would say that we're really interested in exploring the kind of materials biological interface, um, breaking down barriers in drug delivery, but also in who we think about can be a scientist and who we think can do research. Awesome. We are so happy we to love have that. you here. We love we that. Love that. <laughs> um, okay, so first question, kind of starting at the very, very beginning of your scientific journey. Can you tell us about how you first got interested in chemistry? Yeah, so I guess this story has two kind of threads to it. Uh, the first is uh, what now I realize is chemistry, but didn't uh, as kind of a teenager, which is keeping fish alive as pets. So to keep a fish alive, you don't really need to keep the fish as much as you need to keep the water. Uh, and of course, it's kind of the interface between chemistry and biology and keeping those microorganisms alive. And so really, that's what sparked uh, the first interest in chemistry for me was trying to get that water chemistry just right um, to keep those fish happy. Um, but in terms of academic chemistry, it wasn't really until I was in college, you know, I'm the first person in my family to, to go to college. And so I didn't really realize that, like, being a scientist is something you could do as a job. Um, and so it was really, and I know this is the story for so many of us, but it was really um, my freshman, one of my freshman chemistry professors who kind of invited me into his lab to do research. Uh, and I was pretty much set on being pre-law. I was pretty convinced I was going to go um, and go to law school because uh, I thought it would be really fun if people could pay me to argue with other people because I thought I was really good at that. Um, and I just got into the lab and I really fell in love. There's like no other feeling to describe it. The feeling that you know something that's a secret from the rest of the world and you're the first person to know that secret and like being able to share that with people. And so that's kind of what got me hooked and why I'm here. And now um, instead of being the person who first gets to hear the kind of universe whispering its secrets, I get to be the person who creates that space for other people, um, which is you know, the best feeling ever. If I can do that for, for one person, even one time, it's like, I'm, I'm happy. That is such like a beautiful poetic way to like describe mm -hmm. chemistry, finding yourself like in, in your like first lab experience and like really the like beauty of like the journey of being a young scientist, like all of us, um, anyone who even really listens to this podcast, maybe you're not even in the chemistry field, you listen to this podcast, like if you're connected to science in any way, that like finding out, like figuring out, like you're kind of in on the secret is so, mm -hmm. it's like such a beautiful way to put it. I've never thought about it like that. And, and what a beautiful way to, to going from that 
you know, stage in your life to then become the person that mentors and then guides those people into their mm-hmm. careers. That's so, it's, it's beautiful. Just like, you know, a, a cycle. And it's so funny when you mentioned the, the, the fish, the, the tag, I, I, you know, I don't think about it, but you think that that's right. You know, usually you have to check the levels of the pH, the water, you know, right. oxygen levels in the water. You don't want algae and other bio um, organisms growing in your water. That's so, that's so cool, actually. And it was specifically actually the equilibrium between ammonia and ammonium which changes with pH. And so uh, the kind yeah. of ammonium ion is much less toxic. And so figuring mm-hmm. out, at, you know, at how the pH interplayed with that kind of really kind of sparked me at, at, into mm-hmm. thinking about how I could influence the chemistry and keep the fish happy. <laughs> I love that. You see, uh, now I can add this to the, the list of things that people don't think that chemistry is involved, but there is chemistry. And this is something that everyone, you know, deals with the fish tank. Not everyone, you know, but a lot of people deals with fish tanks. Yeah. There's chemistry there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So continuing your, your academic journey, you then, like you mentioned, completed your undergraduate studies at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Um, and then you moved to your PhD at the University of Oxford in the lab of Richard Compton. Um, can you please tell us about, you know, your experiences in these two different institutions specifically? as an LGBTQ plus person. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I will say that I had maybe a unique experience. I hope not, but maybe a unique experience in that my PI was really the first person that I came out to as being queer. Um, wow. And he was, and he's not queer himself. Um, and so uh, this is this is Jason Harper at the University of New South Wales. And I really had lots of hearts, hearts with him. And he was a big part of the reason why I'm in this job. Now, he was the person who said, I think you should you can be a professor. I think you should do this. But you have to leave Australia uh, and go somewhere else to experience science around the world. Um, but he was like, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and he really was there with me while I was navigating that part of my identity as a young adult. Um, and so the, like, the importance of PIs acting as allies for their queer students cannot be understated. I mean, he really provided a space for me to figure out who I was as a, as a young person um, and kind of gave me the, the armor I needed almost to, to go and just move countries. I'd never really left Australia for any significant period of time when I moved to the UK. Uh, and it was kind of terrifying. Um, and it was a little lonely, you know, moving to a new country, a new research group. I'd never done that before, so I didn't really appreciate the level of grief that comes with leaving. Almost like a scientific chosen family, you know? Um, but luckily, I began to kind of create my own family when I was in Oxford. So one really cool thing about Oxford and Cambridge is that they have this college system. So even as a grad student, you're part of a college where you kind of are organized socially. And so uh, that meant that all of the kind of LGBTQ plus people within the college would get together and socialize. And so you had a support network outside of the lab, which was really important. Um, But also we kind of had a section of the office where all of the like queer people liked to sit. Um, And so that was really fun. Um, And, you know, I think that 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 was also really informative for me is having other queer lab members who I could talk to about what my experiences were like in and grad school um, and so I think that's that was a really unique opportunity and, and you know the, the importance of community really I think yeah it's it's a, when awesome. you when you speak about the colleges is it is it the groups of like chemistry people or is it different majors and different uh, you know areas of, of yeah it's totally different areas and so I that's think so cool. there are 38 or 39 now there's a new one 
colleges and you're divided yeah not oh, by no. your subject area um oh. but by other things although St John's College which is where I went and also where um Professor Compton was as a fellow so everybody really is associated with a college most of the mm-hmm. academics are although not all of them um and so it's more like a social home although so cool. undergraduates have all of their like one-on-one teaching within the college system so but for graduate students it's much more of a social community mm-hmm. home where you'd get to meet people doing all different kinds of of phds that is so, so that's, cool. that's so cool oh my so yeah. so so they really like want you to socialize with people and like make yeah. peers okay that that's so cool mm-hmm. that, that should be implemented in the u.s because i think i know <laughs> at least graduate programs are very isolating you know you only you know you if you don't go out and start meeting people there's nothing that the school i mean i'm talking in my experience in some other schools yeah talk to people um you you have to do you have to which we, we have to put the, the, the foot forward but the school should do something to bring people together and you can meet other people from other majors and other colleges, like you said. That's so cool, actually. Wow, awesome. So I imagine then, given this like very, well, first this very big move from Australia to Cambridge, and then you're in this like graduate experience where there's like really intentional communities like built in um, outside of just chemistry. I can imagine that it was probably pretty different when you moved um, from the UK to um, the US for your postdoc. Um, so you mm-hmm. did your postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard in the lab of Samir Mitragotrim. Hopefully I pronounced that okay. Mitragotri, yeah. I think that there was an extra M. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how was that experience kind of moving countries again, like a very big move once again um, across the pond? Um, and then also, how did this postdoc fuel your desire to stay in America to further your academic career? Yeah. So, I mean, Samir is just so wonderful. Anyone that ever meets him will, will tell you that. He's very welcoming and he immediately makes you feel like you belong, which I think is no small feat in a kind of culture or climate that really does the opposite in general. Um, and so I think meeting him, and so of course I, my previous training was as a physical chemist, physical organic chemistry, uh, and he was trained as a chemical engineer, but really works as a bioengineer now. And so it was kind of a marriage of what I thought I could bring, you know, the chemistry of ionic liquids through to what he was doing, which is using these ionic liquids to do the incredible things in a biological context. Um, and so it was a really interesting experience getting to learn to think like an engineer. Um, and I think we have these jokes about how chemists and engineers or scientists and engineers are different. Um, but in certain respects, I found it really true. Um, and the first kind of year was really interesting because we would not fight about it, but like have conflicts over the way we would want to think about the problem. But I really began to appreciate like the idea of viewing, for example, the human body as a system. And so I thought some of the things from engineering we could definitely use in chemistry, you know, thinking about how the work that we're going to do is going to impact real people. I found that really, really cool. Um, And so really, for me, in terms of staying in the US, I interviewed actually uh, in six different countries. Um, So I had on-campus interviews in the UK, in the US, and in Australia. Um, And ultimately, and I know we'll get to this in a little bit, but ultimately, this is just where I found my home 
One great thing about the US uh, is really that the funding landscape means that it's possible to do a little bit more than other funding landscapes, for example, in the UK or Australia or New Zealand. Um, so that was an important an important factor is unfortunately you need funding to be able to, to do your science, right? So um, that was important, but it was also the home that I made here. Gotcha. I have a, a, a sort of related question to this and also something that you mentioned earlier. So when you were saying that, you know, we're looking into PhD programs, your advisor recommended you going outside of Australia. Can you speak mm -hmm. a little, you know, if you have any comments about like, because I don't know anything, you know, about, about the, the you know, schools in Australia. So is there a reason? Because I know for, you know, in my case, it's a little bit different. I'm from Puerto Rico. So I did my undergrad there. And then my P, my undergrad PI was like, if you want to do a PhD, I recommend you go to the States to do a PhD instead, mm -hmm. instead of staying in Puerto Rico. And a lot of the, the of that is because of funding and, and opportunities like that. So is it sort of similar or, or yeah, what can you comment on, on that? Yeah, so I think that advice really came from a place of, and I'm not saying that I love this about academia because I definitely don't, but this idea that you have to move and get new experiences and experience new things and that you are inherently more valuable almost like the further away you are from all the people you love like you you know you've proven yourself worthy you've fallen on the sword of academia and you've proven yourself worthy and so yeah. i think it was more just like you need to experience a different academic culture um and both like on paper you will be more competitive but also scientifically you will think more deeply about things because you have a different perspective Right. Um, and so I think that's where that was coming from. It's like you need to go and immerse yourself in a different academic culture and a different just culture in general than mm -hmm. what we have here to really appreciate what we're doing and like kind of broaden your right. focus. So I think that's where where he was coming from when Most he said that. Okay. That's, nice. that's such a unique experience, like starting off in one country for your undergrad and then going to a completely different country, different continent for your grad school, and then a completely different country and continent for your postdoc. So did you kind of see like really, really stark differences between doing even just like research, not even just thinking oh, yeah. about like the culture of the, the country and whatnot, but like differences in like how research is done, the culture of like chemistry research at like these three different institutions? Yeah, huge differences. Um, and I also want to say for the record, I didn't imagine I was going to end up at Harvard. I actually interviewed with Samir when he was at UC Santa Barbara because mm -hmm. I felt really strongly about being able to see a beach from the lab. <laughs> um, and I was probably oh. like the, the most heartbroken postdoc at Harvard for the first six months while it was snowing. I mean, you know, you, know, you have the you have the Charles River, you have like some water. <laughs> Not the same. I, not, the, not the same. I was so sad. I was so sad. But yeah, there's huge differences in culture. I think one of the big ones is there's this huge tea time culture in the UK. So like at every every day at like 3.30 p.m., everyone would like down tools and go and have tea. And you would literally, I mean, it's like, imagine like the department holiday party, but every day. So every day you like talking, department tea time yeah you're like talking to phd students from all across the department that's awesome and other faculty over tea and everyone would just like convene in the, and there was this beautiful big common space where everyone would come to drink tea and talk to each other and so i think that's really quite a big difference we seem to not have that much culture mm -hmm. that culture really as ingrained in the united states i think the idea yeah. that you would 
kind of stop working in the lab to go and talk to people would be like heresy here <laughs> you know that you would like stop yeah. running your reactions or whatever to go and catch up over a cup of coffee yeah right and it would be like sanctioned by the head of the department <laughs> is kind that's of surreal right right that is surreal it's kind of wild but i really appreciated that because i think it, it really taught some of the soft skills of like collegiality mm -hmm, and how mm -hmm. to talk about your science in an informal way that we do when we go to conferences mm -hmm. but like that's quite high pressure yeah, yeah. definitely um, I will say one of the other cultural aspects that I appreciate about the U.S. is that when you get offered a place in a Ph.D. program, it comes with funding. Now, admittedly, mm -hmm. often you have to do stuff for that funding. It's not like mm -hmm. you just get given the money and you get to exist. But in the U.K., that's not how it works. The funding is not tied to the admission offer. So you oh. have to get funded separately from getting into a Ph.D. program. Oh, that is so very intense. Which wow. is stressful. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. So so it's sort uh, of I think, postdocs. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think that really has a huge opportunity to perpetuate inequality. Right? Like I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how in the same way here that you could go into a PhD program really from from many more backgrounds than you could in the UK to be able to self-fund a PhD until you can get funding to be able to prove that you have like $18,000 in the bank so you can accept your offer, like all of that, I think, you know, probably plays a really big role in perpetuating the inequality that we see in higher education in the UK. Yeah, right. definitely. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Wow. And now we're we're gonna switch gears a little bit, but that was, that was really <laughs> interesting. Um, so while you were in Boston, you were a member of two LGBTQ plus choruses. Um, can you tell us how you got involved in, in these? And then are you continuing to sing as a hobby now that, that you moved from there? Yeah, so I think this is also, you know, something that's important is when you when you move to a new place and you're trying to find community, like the value of finding queer community outside of the university context as well as in it. Because uh, I will say that the majority of the people who were in these courses were not affiliated with any university. And that was really important for me because it made me realize that, hey, there's actually a whole big world of, pe like, of people who aren't caught up in this stuff. Like nothing you do really matters. So don't worry about it. You know, all of, we get in our own heads uh, about that. And I, I think I found the original acapella group Kinsey Scales on Facebook and just went to the audition. Um, and from there, there was a lot of cross-pollination. And so I ended up joining uh, Voices Rising, the, the kind of queer women's chorus uh, there. The highlight there was actually a little bit after I joined, we got to sing back up for Demi Lovato on her tour. Ooh. That um, is such a flex. I know. That is and a they, big like, flex. <laughs> they like put their arm around me while they were performing. And I was like, I oh, joined this God. chorus three weeks ago. <laughs> That is such a fun fact. Please tell me that you tell your classes that now that you're a professor. That, oh, I that should. should be like that should be like fun fact day one. Like, that's right. <laughs> that's that's right. So really connect with the youth. <laughs> yes. Look, I try. I try. Um, but yeah, that was a it was a really big thing. You know, we, we talked about losing the community going from Oxford um through to the U.S. and Boston I think that was a really big lifeline for me because if the culture of academia in the U.S. is set up so differently um singing wise I mainly just do it for fun now a little bit of karaoke here and there I haven't joined any choirs here that's of course because I moved in the pandemic and singing was one of the things that was really dangerous 
um, to do in person. And so I, I kind of kept up with the courses virtually for a little while. And then this job got a little intense. And so I had to step away. Um, but it's mostly something I do in a non-organized fashion at the moment. But I have ambitions of roping in someone who can play guitar or something to do open mics eventually. Amazing. Amazing. Nice. Okay, yeah. So leading into where you are now, in 2020, you became an assistant professor at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. So changing up Oxford's a little bit. Yeah, that's Um, right. (laughs) Changing up Oxford's and Cambridge's, I see. Um, So why did you choose Ole Miss? I should preface this by saying when I wrote this question, Geraldo was like, what is Ole Miss? And I was like, (laughs) oh, it's just like what people call the University of Mississippi. I'm from Louisiana. So I'm like, well yeah, that makes sense. acquainted with um the University of Mississippi. Anyway, so why did you choose Ole Miss and um how have the first few years of being a professor? How have those been? Yeah. Um great questions, right? So I I kind of alluded to this before about kind of finding my home. And you know, I interviewed a lot of different places, and here I kind of felt like they would both let me kind of spread my wings and do the kind of research that I wanted, but also that they would let me build the kind of lab that I wanted to build and that they were kind of ready for me to come and to kind of challenge the status quo a little bit. Um, At other schools, I really felt like they wanted me to choose between, you know, being a chemist or being an engineer, Like, like pick something, get in a box. And that made me nervous because it made me worry that they would want me to be in a box in other facets of my life and research too. And I don't like that. And so, you know, I basically landed here um, because I thought that my future colleagues would support me. Um, And that has turned out to be even more important than I could have realized because, of course, I accepted this job in January uh, of 2020 before the world fell apart. And so it became actually way more important than I had realized to think about how important my colleagues are. Um, But also, you know, obviously I'm not American and so I don't have the same, I don't carry the same um, corporeal kind of history of this country in the way that people that grew up here have. We have our own history that I carry, especially around uh, how the Indigenous people uh, were and are continue to be treated in Australia but I don't have the physical embodiment of slavery having grown up here right so it's a different it's a different situation than another white woman who moves down south having been raised in America so everything that I know I know from reading a lot not from having experienced it growing up Um, but I kind of saw it as a real opportunity to come and build something somewhere where there are a lot of people who want to do good science and there aren't a lot of spaces for them to do good science in. So that was also a really important part of my decision. Um, that has proved to be true. Uh, my colleagues have been extremely supportive. Um, I even broke my ankle uh, in kind of the winter of 2021. And my colleagues drove me to every single doctor's appointment. This was before we had vaccines, right? So scared for our lives. They drove me to doctor's appointments. They dropped food off. Um, I was living alone at that time because my husband was in Cambridge for a postdoc. And so it's really like um, if I have any advice from anyone who's listening to this, who's currently on the job market, find somewhere where your colleagues will yell at the doctor for not giving you a mobility aid if you need them to, you know, that's amazing. Like like find somewhere where they really have your back as a person. Like you are not Mm -hmm. just like a, a cog in the machine. You're a person and they value you. Yeah. 
That's awesome. This, this, I, yeah, this is a, a direct, direct translation, you know, well, sort of a graduate school, you need a support system of peers. When you're a professor, you also need a support system of peers, you know, it's like. Yeah, it's absolutely. And I will say that, you know, a real lifeline has been the other, especially young women faculty who started at the same time as I did across all different kinds of departments on campus. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we did and do still meet regularly to kind of trade war stories about how everything is going you know it's it's tricky to say what it would have been like to start a lab in a different context because I don't have that other context I know that there were lots of challenges you know fears of the, the people that you that kind of trust you to look after them getting sick because they're working in a lab you know um down to very mundane, non-important things like we can't get gloves or pipette tips to save our lives. Um, and so that was definitely challenging, but I don't know that, for example, having set the lab up in 2019 and then having it shut down after a year, whether that would have been worse. Um, I can't yeah. say, you know, everyone who's worked with me came in knowing the reality of the situation that we're dealing with in terms of supply shortages and in terms of, you know, the, the way that the world is at the moment. So I didn't have to hold their kind of broken dreams at the same time as mine, you know? I feel like folks who were in the middle of a grad program when this happened, that's like a lot of things have gone that you have to grieve for, that you're never going to get back. Um, and so that's something that we, you know, we didn't have that grief. We were in the thick of it. Um, yeah. But broadly, I would say that we are doing very well. Um, I mean, I have a just a fantastic team of people. I really, I can't. I'm very lucky to get the opportunity to work with them. And now sitting on kind of on the other side of the desk, if you will, like meeting, I've met a number of scientists now who I've said, oh my God, like you need to be here. Like the world will suffer if you aren't here. Um, and have thankfully managed to kind of create pathways to get them into the lab and those kinds of things. But I'm I'm so grateful to be able to be on this side and to say, you really like, Ooh, the world like needs you to be a scientist we can't lose you that's awesome I uh, it just really warms my heart to know that like one you kind of like intentionally chose this place like for what it is knowing like what you're coming in with from your own personal experiences I just like that's such a fresh and like interesting perspective that I think a lot of other schools and a lot of other regions of the country probably get a lot of that kind of international professors mm -hmm. like coming in with a different experience and they bring it to these different institutions. I think a lot of times, like I'm, I grew up in the South, I actually went mm -hmm. to college in Memphis, so pretty close to Oxford. Um, and then coming to like grad school from like a Southern perspective, a lot of times like the scientific atmosphere and scientific like framework in the South is like lacking in a lot of ways because yeah. people, you know, like people go to the big universities on in California on the East Coast and the West Coast, and it kind of like leaves out a lot of the scientific potential that lives in the South. Yeah. And so I just, I think it's like so important that like more and more people are especially like younger people, people from like different backgrounds and experiences are going into these schools and and like you were saying, doing as much as you can to kind of create space, um, mm -hmm. carve out like new space that maybe didn't exist. And also hopefully encourage and inspire like the next generation of students who are going to the University of Mississippi to see themselves as future scientists and future professors and things like that. I just, I think that's so important. It's like not something that, you know, we haven't had a lot of, uh, 
Southern professors or, you know, professors from the South on this podcast. Um, And I don't know of many in our community, at least personally. So I just think that that's so important. And I really do like admire the work that you're doing. So thank you. And I, you know, I teach general chemistry. So I teach the freshest scientists um, and I refer to them as my colleagues from day one. You know, when I write emails, I say, hello, chemists or dear scientists. And when I say hello to them in class, I refer to them as scientists. And we reflect on what it means to be a scientist and um, all of those kinds of things within the framework of learning general chemistry. Because um, I really do believe that that all of us kind of are born scientists and then the world strips that privilege away from us. Yeah, definitely. So I guess this kind of going along with um, your first few years as a professor, what have you learned about yourself since both starting your own research group and then also teaching to these, you know, freshmen in general chemistry? What are some of the things that you've learned about yourself? Well, it's been a very humbling experience. Let me say that. Um, I mean, this, this job is incredibly difficult. I think it was much more difficult than I imagined it was going to be. Um, even as someone who is pretty sure that this is what I wanted to do. Um, there's just a lot that you don't see and a lot that you, like a lot of difficult choices that you have to make when you get here that you don't see coming um, because now you're in charge, right? Like you've got to make sure that everybody gets paid and like everybody has access to all the opportunities they need to, you want them to have access to. And so it's, that it has been really humbling and really difficult um, but I think just accepting that we're a team and I don't have to have all of the answers has really helped with that. And I, I hope to move even more and more towards a more collaborative approach. I mean, we all have different roles, right? So my role in the group um, is really like, I just shake the tin can around and try and collect money. Like, I feel like that's my job is to try and collect the money. And then once I get decent at that, maybe I can help other people learn how to shake the tin can in the direction of the federal government. But it really to move towards this idea where we we collaborate to come up with ideas and share the space together. And so that's also what I've learned is how like important and cool it is to give other people space to develop their own ideas um, and what I can do to facilitate that. But I mean, I've learned an incredible amount, right? Like being in the system for the first time, really. Um, you know, obviously I didn't grow up in the system, so I did, I'd never applied really for a grant here before so like I had to learn about how to do all of that and that was wild it continues to be wild you know learning all about like the NSF GRFP and like that is wild and thinking about like coaching my own students to apply for it and thinking gosh like you know how is the system gonna treat my students just broadly like how is this how are this how am I gonna help protect or work with my students to fight the systemic inequalities that we're all up against right. and just being humbled by the scale. So going going along those lines, what are some short-term and long-term goals that you have for, for your lab and for your group? Yeah, so obviously we have a lot of, a bunch of scientific goals, right? So we, we, <laughs> yeah. we really work to, to try and understand how these anaclyquid coatings that we're designing, how they interface with the body. So I think, I mean, obviously the ultimate long-term goal for that would be to be able to eventually see these in people and helping people and particularly helping people who are amongst communities that have been historically marginalized. So that's another big focus of the research that we do, which comes naturally when you have 
people from all over who are contributing because they have problems that they see from their families or their communities that they want to solve and they just need a space to solve it. So I think certainly that's our long-term goal is to be able to create kind of healthcare technology uh, that helps people um, and particularly Black and African-American people living in Mississippi. Um, and our short-term goal, I guess, and long-term goal is to really create, continue to craft these spaces to be loud about what kind of people deserve to do science, everybody, um, and to make sure that people have spaces that they can do their science safely and essentially not not have to, like incorporate their cultural identity and their scientific identity and not feel like they have to be two different people when they're working in the space. And so those really are our short-term and long-term goals because I just can't imagine what the face of science would look like if we started changing, you know, who who gets told about research opportunities? Who gets brought into the lab? Um, you know, I have students who are working, obviously, and but could we pay them to do science instead so that they can both do science and be able to feed their family? You know, like, how can we do this? And it's, it's an uphill, like the easier way around would be not do any of this work. Um, but that's not why we're here. You know, that's not why any of us are here. It's we don't no. take the easy way out for anything. If we can solve hard problems in research, why can we not work together to solve hard problems in diversifying and creating actually inclusive spaces for people to work in? Yeah. We love definitely. that. We love yes. that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes to all of that. What a noble fight and noble goals to have as a young professor. I just think that it's it's very admirable how much mm-hmm. of a commitment you have to not only, you know, I don't know, I, I feel like a lot of times people will say like, oh, I'm working to make, you know, chemistry spaces more diverse and blah, 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 blah. But to really like have it integrated into your research model, to your like what you like what you want out of your lab what you want out of your time as a professor to really make that like an integral part of the Mm -hmm. foundation of your research I feel like is something that we don't see a lot and it's just like very amazing so thank you for doing that it's beautiful yes (laughs) no it's my pleasure I'm I'm really as I said I'm just very privileged to get to work with these scientists and I cannot imagine them not being in science you know I just can't um, and so I'm I'm lucky to play even like, you know, one tiny speck of uh, the part of that story that started for them the way it was started for me and presumably for all of us who are mm-hmm. who are sitting here in science, you know, I yeah. you got to someone's got to be the spark, someone's got to provide the shelter from the wind so the fire can grow, you know, definitely. Okay, so one of my favorite questions, the question that we ask every single episode, who is your chemistry or science role model and why? And you can have more than one. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a little while, knowing that you were going to ask this question. Um, I think it would be difficult to not say Carolyn Batozzi, right? Especially given her recent Nobel Prize (laughs) victory. I just think, and, you know, listening to the stuff that she shared on the podcast, like earlier in the summer and all of this other stuff, I mean, it's difficult to not pick her as, as a role model. Cause I just think she's done such incredible things for our community, for biochemistry, for chemical biology. Um, and, you know, when I was on the job market, like meeting her really made me feel like I could be myself and be a professor and be queer and it was all going to be okay. Um, and so she is definitely one of them. 
Um, one of my other role models is actually a collaborator of mine, Dr. Davida Watkins, who works at Ohio State University. Um, she used to be my colleague and then she absconded to Ohio State, but I forgive her for that. Um, and I just really admire like the precise way that she does her science and also that she organizes things and the way that she is acutely aware of getting people to the places that they need to be in and creating opportunities for people. And I strive to be as strategic about science and advocacy as she is. So she's probably one of my other chemistry role models. Amazing. Great answers. Great answers. Yes. <laughs> um, so our last question, where can people uh, follow you or find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Yeah. So Walls Twitter still exists. <laughs> yes. Good point. <laughs> I know. I don't, e I don't even have a backup yet. So if you're listening to this in the future and Twitter has died, yeah. um, I'll send up a bat <laughs> signal or something. I am... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was boring and didn't realize that you shouldn't just put your first and last name as your social media handle. So probably everywhere you will be able to find me as Eden Tanner. And also our lab website, uh, which is mm -hmm. thetannerlab.com is where we keep, we try and keep that updated for all of the, all of the happenings. Amazing. And I'm assuming since you're a newer lab, you're actively recruiting more graduate students. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, so we have kind of, in a couple of years, we will be. So if you are a, a very baby scientist and thinking about grad school in the next couple of years, we probably will okay. be. Uh, we have nine PhD students in the group at the moment. That's wow. awesome. Oh, my God. Yes. yes. Um, so that is wow. really cool. We are recruiting a postdoc to work on some of the animal work that just got funded by the NIH. So looking mm -hmm. at, at glio imaging and treating glioblastoma Um Okay. So if you are finishing up grad school and you think you'd like to come and work with us and work with an amazing group of uh, people, um, and I have a service dog too, so you'll get to hang out with the dog, which is pretty cool. Oh my um, God, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so please, please drop me a line. Um, awesome. But otherwise you can always email me. I know that's like old fashioned and kind of silly, <laughs> but uh, my, my email is eetana at olmes.edu. Um, but you should be able to find that. By, that's the benefit of having a somewhat unique first name, I think. Is yeah. Find me on the internet. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for an incredible interview for being on the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, that's all we have you for so you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. We hope that y'all are staying safe and healthy out there. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQCPod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon, and happy holidays. Bye. Adios.